Welcome again to the Southwest Climate Podcast, the pandemic version. Uh, number two, Mike, how you doing? Good, Zach. How are you doing? Good to see you virtually. Yeah, I know. I, I haven't seen you even on Zoom since the last time we did this. Oh, yeah, I guess. Yeah, we haven't. We haven't really done anything. We've been on Slack feverishly, though. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, I, can't, I can't look and see how long your beard has gotten. And I, I, I must... Uh, commend you on that. I, I can't believe you stuck with it. It's total laziness now. The idea of even trimming it just terrifies me. Like I wouldn't even know, like I figured it would fight back. You know what? I'm kicking myself though. I wish I would have done one of those time-lapse photos where I took a picture of myself every day and, and animated it. Didn't do that. It's good to see you. So um, we are smack now in the heart of the heat season. Every May, you talk about how much you hate right now. Yeah. So are you going to do it? I know I'm feeling pretty good, actually. You know, really? Two cups of coffee. No, I'm not feeling like I'm going to dog on the heat season. What's but different this year? We're sort of sequestered at our house, and, and I'm spending less time actually suffering through the heat. And we did have a, a very rough stretch across the Southwest in the early part of May. Uh, got up to 106, believe it or not, uh, which I believe was a record or close to the record at that time. Yeah, well, it was, well, was the record for the day. Yep. Yeah, we'll decompose the heat season in a minute. Let me just very briefly go over the outline. So we want to spend just a little bit of time putting a bow uh, again, because we did this last time. But now we have the final numbers in for the winter. So we'll do some rankings of the 2019-2020 winter. And then we'll uh, spend some time talking about May and June, the heat season. And we are at that time of year, Mike, where some monsoon forecasts are starting to dribble out. Always a, a challenging thing to do even days before the monsoon begins, uh, even cha more challenging a month and a half before, but uh, nonetheless worth our time to, to uh, talk a little bit about that. And then, you know, we've got uh, a transition kind of looks like into potentially uh, a La Nina, um, but there's some, there's some nuance with those uh, La Nina projections that are worth talking a little bit about for the winter. So we'll, we'll do that. What do you think? Great. Good outlook. Thanks for, thanks for being organized. Those, those <laughs> two cups of coffee, clearly you're in your sweet spot. Yeah, I am in my sweet spot. Uh, I may need another one before this is over. So <laughs> can we do that in, uh, in an hour? What do you think? Uh, hopefully less. Yeah. <laughs> or ben, uh, ben will make sure that it's a less. <laughs> I did a little bit of a deep dive into the, the winter rankings. And so I thought I would go big to small. So focus on the global and come all the way down to southwestern cities. Okay, so we're going to go global first. I have to mix and match a little bit of the time periods just because the data sources sort of parse things up uh, in a slightly different way, but there's not too much difference. But I'll try to be clear when I, when I describe them. Globally, the October through April period came in as the third warmest on record. Only Two years ago and three years ago were warmer. Last year was not as warm for this winter period. This winter was 0.8 degrees Celsius, not Fahrenheit, Celsius above the long-term average. Okay, so that continues a warming trend that we know very well in all parts of the globe. Okay, so for the U.S. as a whole, now the November through April period, so the previous one was included October through April, this one is just November through April seventh warmest on record. So it comes in at, a, at 119th out of 125. So let's, let's hone in on, on Arizona, New Mexico. 
Arizona was the 17th warmest for the November through April period, and this is based on uh, NOAA data, and New Mexico was the 13th warmest. And then um, rainfall, I'm not gonna do rainfall globally uh, or even like continentally, uh, I think it's less interesting. So let's just- Blacker, geez. <laughs> yeah, it's harder to find. <laughs> For sure. uh, but there's more, variability is higher. So there's a, it's a little less meaningful. But precip, pretty good precip winner, as we've talked about for both Arizona and New Mexico, 109th out of 125. So what would that be? Mike, do the math on the fly. That would be no the 17th uh, wettest and New Mexico is the 16th wettest. So what time period is that for again? The, the continental U.S. and the states are for November through uh, April. Okay, so then the cities... In terms, of, in terms of temperature, all uh, in the upper, um, upper tercile, if you will, upper 33rd percentile. So Tucson came in in the 87th percentile. And I'm using percentile here because they all have different periods of, of, of record. So the, the numbers aren't, aren't as meaningful. Phoenix was the 75th percentile. Albuquerque was the 91st percentile. And Prescott was the 74th percentile. Uh, flag was 69. I'm, I'm dropping a lot of numbers, but basically much above average temperature. You know, with temperature, the, the, one of the points here is that the, the patterns are broadly consistent. It's not the case for, for precipitation, but warmer globally, warmer continentally, warmer uh, statewide, warmer individual cities. And then, you know, it was, was also a pretty darn good winter for uh, rainfall across the Southwest. Tucson was at 71st percentile, Phoenix 77th, Flag 76, Albuquerque 74. So all around 75th percentile across the Southwest. So uh, pretty darn good, Mike, in terms of these aggregate, this, this aggregate view and in terms of precipitation, not a lot to uh, complain about. Looking at some of the cool season um, climate plots we got. So we're looking at October through end of May. So these, this season, we're kind of terming cool season, we'll wrap up in just a couple of weeks here. And yeah, I see Phoenix as being the uh, 20, it's the 21st uh, wettest out of 73 years. And so it's, a, it's what, 5.8 inches. And the average is just a little bit over four. And Tucson is, uh, ranks uh, 23rd wettest out of 73 years. And so just a little over five inches. So it's probably about a half inch above average. And then Albuquerque, the uh, 30th wettest out of uh, 75 years in their, in their record, above average precip for the end of the year there. They are at 4.5, just about 4.6 inches, just a little bit over the average, which is a little over four. And then Flagstaff is the 25th wettest out of 71 years. And they are at uh, 15 and a half inches and their average would be um, a little over 13 inches. So I completely agree with you on the, uh, the precip. It's, you know, it, to me, it's not, it's not a gangbuster wet year, but, you know, as kind of normal-ish as we could get from kind of hydroclimate standpoint. Like if we could do this every year, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be disappointed. That's for sure. Well, right. But it also was even more important that we were at least uh, hovering around average if, and we were better in, in a lot of places. But it was even more important given that, we, that the winter came on the heels of a, a pretty poor uh, monsoon season. 
Yeah, and if you if you look at the accumulation of precip, you know, Phoenix, Tucson, Albuquerque, Flagstaff, since uh, November when we had our big rally that kind of kicked off the winter season, that's what that's what contributed to to much of the precip totals for the whole Southwest here. We had pretty even accumulations, so we didn't really have too many, if any, stretches where we really dried out and started to fall behind. But the the accumulation from November right through uh, even last month has been pretty even and consistent, which you know I think has really helped with a, a you know a lot of things from. I think it spurred on and, and helped the vegetation growth that we're seeing with the wild wildflowers and I think all the blooms. And I think it's helped sort of tamp down the fire season to the very last minute. We're probably entering this phase between now and uh, the monsoon start where we're going to hit that critical mass as far as fire danger. I'm glad you brought up the blooms because I wanted to ask you, your, your wife is at the National Phenology Network and I, I, I'm curious because I've been riding my bike and I just don't remember, I think they're ironwoods. I don't remember seeing the blooms on the ironwoods, these purple flowers ever as they have been this, this spring. I don't know. Have you at all talked about that? Is there anything uh, that has come up related to the, to the ironwood bloom? I mean, it's just been amazing. Yeah, so this is a free cross promo for uh, National Phenology Network right here, if anybody's listening. They have some really cool visualization tools on their site where you can go on and pick a species and pick a location and then develop these plots. So it'll, it'll tell you flowering intensity and timing going back in time. And so she's pulled a couple up for our desert willow in our backyard. And so we were kind of having the same conversation as far as flowering intensity. It doesn't seem to be more intense, but it's later this year, which is kind of interesting. Really? Uh, we Even saw the ironwoods? Or do, I'm, do, not, do, I'm not sure about the ironwoods. You'd have to kind of, that's where I'm, I'm, you know, I'm recommending you check that out because you yeah. can go in there and, and actually see some of those past observations and see if the timing and the intensity is, is a little bit different this year. It's just been striking. I mean, it's, it's been a few days out there. I'm like, wow, the Southwest is just so cool. It is. And I think the timing of the precip in the fall and the relatively moderate, moderate temperatures and the continuation of some of those precip events has kind of extended and drawn out the season a bit. I mean, that's, that's kind of my take, and that's where the, the data would be really well, helpful to look at it. I think that's a good segue because the temperatures have been all but moderate in, since basically the first of this month. Man, I thought we were getting off scot-free too. <laughs> well, if you recall, and it's, it's, it's just vague in my mind, but I I do remember last year's sort of heat season as being pretty mild. If you complained about May last year, we should go back to the tapes. I don't crazy. think I could not have complained about May. I don't think I don't, you could have either. Cause I think it I was think, one of the coolest Mays in recent. I think we, I think you have to go back to the fifties to find a, a May as cool as it was at least in Tucson last year. I don't think there was ever a day in May last year that had over a hundred degrees. I'm looking at the data right now. There was zero days in May over 100, 100 degrees or over. Yeah, so, so I have this data up in front of me. For Tucson, the mean average temperature in May for 2019 was 70.9 degrees Fahrenheit. That's, that is insane. So you've got to go back to 1977 to find anything close to that temperature. 
Yeah, that's, so you, you've got we're not, we're not going to have that this year. <laughs> no, I think we've already ruined that. Yeah, so looking across Arizona and New Mexico, the first three weeks of May, in the Tucson area, it's been the maximum temperature has been on average seven degrees warmer than average. And if you go into New Mexico and in, in the eastern part of New Mexico and northern part of New Mexico, it's been more than uh, eight, eight and um, between eight and 10 the maximum temperature, so the high temperature has been eight to 10 degrees Fahrenheit uh, warmer than it, it, it typically is. Those are pretty, they're, they're high numbers, substantial. What can you tell us about the sort of weather patterns that's been leading to this sort of very hot start to our, our, our summer season? Yeah, so it, we've been talking about through most of the, the winter season right now, um, a, a pretty active weather pattern in this, this wave train of, you know, upper level low pressure systems and ridges and low pressure systems. And so wherever you are, and this would be the wiggles in the jet stream. And so if you are kind of around a low pressure system, that is going to be cooler temperatures or lower heights coming from uh, higher latitudes, northern latitudes. And if you're under a ridge, you're going to be in the warm. And so what we've seen is that we've had this, again, it's moved around a lot. It's been pretty active. Um, we have had a, a trough of low pressure uh, hang off of the west coast and kind of advance and retreat and advance and retreat, um, split off, become a, a, a closed upper low or even a cutoff occasionally. And that's led to a lot of the precip events we saw in March and April and, and even a little bit earlier in the year. What has happened as we sort of transitioned from April into May was right at the end of the month, the pattern started to shift a little bit and you started to see over the Gulf of Alaska, that trough kind of retreated back to the West and strengthened and deepened. And then another interesting thing happened on the East Coast we had been talking, we talked a little bit about the Arctic Oscillation this year. We, it, really, it really wasn't, it was positive this whole winter, right? And that was, there was always this discussion of when's the polar vortex going to come back and wreak havoc on the East Coast. And what we saw instead for most of the winter was a pretty tightly bottled up uh, higher latitude jet stream without a lot of those cold air excursions. Well, I don't know what precipitated this, but the Arctic Oscillation turned sharply negative and it got really cold and it snowed in the upper Midwest and along the East Coast. So Arizona in the Southwest got um, stuck between a trough off of the West Coast that had retrograded West a little bit. And then there's a big trough of this cold polar air off in the East. And so in between that becomes this ridge of high pressure that got stuck for a couple of days and was enhanced and, and really built up the temperature and the heights over top of us. And we quickly went, do you have some of the numbers in front of you, Zach? We quickly transitioned yeah. from pretty mild conditions in April to up over a hundred and then quickly to 106. And uh, Phoenix ended up having a run of, of uh, hundred degree days as well. And uh, it was pretty brutal and very quick. It was a really quick transition from, I think, fairly mild conditions into that brutal uh, heat. Yeah, and I think we started the first 10 days. The first nine days were all over 95 degrees here in Tucson. And yeah. that was the first, I think that was not the first time, but it was maybe tied as the, the most consecutive days above 95 to start with. And 
you know, we've had so far, you know, our average, our climatological average for the number of, of days with um, temperatures above 100 in, in Tucson. I think the average is, let me see if I can find this, three. And we've already had, we've already had five. And then Phoenix. So Phoenix is currently on the trajectory of having the most number of days above uh, above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's had 15 through uh, yesterday, I believe. And, you know, that's tied for number one with a few other, just a few other years. Uh, so it also has, obviously, it's, it's, it's been under that same ridge that you were just talking about. So Phoenix has had 10 days so far um, in this month, and its average is seven days above, above 100. So we're already above, uh, above average there. The highest number of days in May that has had 100 degree Fahrenheit weather or greater in Phoenix is 19. Right now we're at 10. We're not going to break that record. We may get to 16 in Phoenix. Just looking at the short-term forecast, by the time this drops, this podcast drops, I, I, it'll probably be a few days. Um, but the next you know, week or so is, is, is all, uh, the highs are all to be forecasted to be below 100. Uh, but then towards the end, uh, the middle and end of next week, it does look like the, the temperature is going to ramp up again. And so uh, we may get close to that maximum number, but we won't, we won't break it. But nonetheless, currently right now we are, in Phoenix, uh, tied with the highest number of days uh, to this date uh, at 100 degrees Fahrenheit or above. Yeah, and, and just a shout out to to Paul at the Phoenix National Weather Service office for pulling a lot of that um, Phoenix data together and sharing it with us and chatting with him a little bit too. You know, we were a little bit concerned about this. What does this portend for June and what does it even portend for the monsoon season? And um, I don't, there's not just some quick analysis he pulled up. There doesn't seem to be any real, there isn't actually at all a relationship between May temperatures and monsoon total precipitation for July, August, September. There's a couple of deep dives that you could do kind of analysis wise is to look at the evolution of like 1989 was the last time. And that, that was where you, you saw the real racing out ahead of those hundred degree days and a lot of the, you know, record temperatures across a lot of the Southwest. Is, 1989 was brutal. 1989 was brutal. And, and it ended up being a terrible monsoon season too, which was interesting. Again, that is not a forecast, but just thinking or looking at what were the, the circulation patterns in the broader sort of background conditions as far as any of these other teleconnection patterns to see if there's any sort of alignment. I don't think there is right now. And if you look at the, uh, ensemble forecasts out for the next couple of weeks, they don't end up having that, that same kind of pattern, real strong ridging directly overhead over the Southwest. It's, it's a little bit more, well, again, if you look at the end of the, the forecast run, they drift back to climatology anyways. They're just, it's all this kind of model averaging out. So I don't know. I'm not, I'm not ready to, to say this is that that was portending anything you know, what about, for the next six what about portending for June temperature? Yeah, I, I don't, again, I, I would, we haven't done any of those numbers, but I bet there's not a real strong correlation. Right. It's still weather at this stage. And so it's interesting because, and this is where I, we started our discussion last monsoon season, where was all that troughing and cold conditions in May an indication that we couldn't 
turn it around quickly and, and get into a monsoon pattern and pull it off. I thought, I thought there was as good a chance that we could as we, as we wouldn't, um, right. which is why I kind of, I punted on the, um, the idea that that was, that that was an indication of the monsoon being poor. And I was, I was clearly wrong on that because that trough pattern did linger, but we, you know, we've had, we've had really interesting late spring kind of troughing that has turned into and just turned right around in June and got into strong ridging. And we've had vice versa too, you know, which is where the strong ridging, I think is a little bit more dynamic with the weather pattern across the mid latitudes and not necessarily the same thing that you'd see as the sun angle gets higher. And we just start to see um, that kind of climatological warming into June. Well, these temperatures that we've experienced thus far are a product of the pattern that you were describing before, where we're sort of stuck between two, two troughs and it, it's been persistent, uh, maybe broken down in the, in, in the last week. But so in my mind, then it, it becomes about whether or not whatever is causing that pattern to be the way it is, if, if that persists. So the temperature, yeah. in a sense, is dependent upon broader scale wave train. And so what would, can we sort of think about what, what might create a, a sticky uh, trough ridge trough pattern with us being in the, in, in, the, in the ridge going forward? Typically, it's some kind of remote sea surface temperature forcing, right? It's, it's typically El Nino or La Nina in its mature strong phases would lead to these wave patterns that would, we, would remain, I think, problematic as you moved into the monsoon season, right? And so the whole Northern hemisphere, as we move towards June 21st and our longest day of the year, is that temperature gradient that's driving a lot of the mid-latitude dynam dynamics is it's moving North and retreating. And we get into very broad, weak, subtropical, stagnant patterns. And so then it's upstream forcing that can be traced back to really weak dynamics, even with the Madden-Julian oscillation pulses of tropical activity that are interacting with the mean circulation across the globe, which can impact us in the Southwest for the monsoon season, and even some interactions with like the East Asian monsoon. So that is, you know, and what I've heard Climate Prediction Center talk about is that um, they don't expect to see much of a sticky kind of wave pattern or anything to kind of that they can grab onto that might give them some indication that it's going to be more weather scale variability as we approach the monsoon season and, and as we get into the monsoon season. Right. So in, in, in this sense, then um, going back to what you said a, uh, a minute ago, that the May temperatures um, and from work that, 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 that Paul was doing, May temperatures aren't correlated with monsoon precip or onset uh, but but in that sense, the, the 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 temperature pattern does not sort of it's not strong enough to be this self reinforcing mechanism, right? Because on the one hand, you would think that a warming southwest would help nudge the high pressure ridge maybe more in 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 a, in a favorable position sooner. In the same way that some of early work, you know, in the early 2000s was suggesting that sort of wetter conditions and thus like more evaporation and cooler conditions would lead to a delayed onset because you just, th th those cooler conditions are sort of 
acting uh, to in, inhibit the expansion of the of the ridge. So, so you wouldn't expect the temperatures to act opposite of opposite of the sort of precipitation cooling theory that that's out there. Did that make any sense? Um, I think parts of it did. <laughs> that was long, but I get. Let me see if I can summarize that again. Mm-hmm. Um, what what I was trying to say is that there is you know, some empirical evidence, I guess, and I, I guess it's been stronger in the past and it's sort of broken down in more recent times, but that the, those patterns suggested that cooler sort of high, high, high elevation areas, wetter, cooler, high elevation areas in the Southwest are correlated with a delayed onset of, of, of the monsoon. So if you have that by the opposite logic, like warmer conditions in the Southwest, a la like what we're having right now, may favor an, an, an earlier onset. Um, I've never been particularly convinced by the evidence around that sort of antecedent kind of land surface condition aspect to the monsoon. I think if it is indeed a thing, it's pretty minor. Right. I, I honestly think it's more of a symptom, rela- symptom to a broader circulation pattern that it is a cause by itself. Yeah, I like that. I mean, in, in a way, the, the, the land surface feedback is much more local than the, the sort of broad synoptic or regional scale dynamics that are driving the position of the ridge and these, yeah. and these trough, ridge, trough kind of patterns that you were talking about before. And those seem to be much more influential, much stronger than, quite frankly, like a, a smaller, more regional, more local uh, mechanism. There's some papers out there that I've read, but I don't, I don't totally understand them. And I really need to kind of study them a little bit more, but there's like, even this whole, this idea of is the monsoon North American monsoon system self-limiting because that same kind of reasoning would suggest that as soon as it starts raining in the Southwest, that it would shut itself down. But that does happen on a micro scale, doesn't it? It does, but it's not for the same reason. It's not, you know, there, there's not this idea that you're cooling off the land surface, which would then ruin the subtropical high and it would retreat south. It's, you don't see that kind of dynamics right. in it. You do see stabilization of the atmosphere and you need to rebuild the, um, the instabilities to, you know, increase the convection and stuff like that. But it's not this idea that you're getting this big flux of moisture and it's shifting from sensible to latent heat, which would, you know, change the energy, dyna- energy dynamics of the monsoon season. Th- there is some indication that there are some give and takes as far as the energy balance and that self-limitation, but that to me, it feels like it would fit in the same camp as far as having this idea that you've got to, you know, exercise a lot of this land surface or shift this land surface energy budget to get the monsoon going at the early part of the season. Again, I think there's a lot of work to be done in this area and there, there could be more of an effect, but I, I still kind of look back to some, I think the broader synoptic scale circulation pattern shifts are going to be way more important at the beginning of the season. And we even saw that last year is that that monsoon subtropical ridge really had trouble sticking around in the right spot. And it, you could look at that wave train around the globe and it was, it was getting shoved out of the way the whole time. And it left, it left Northwest Arizona, you know, in, in Flagstaff, uh, you know, like in a, per, a perpetual 
June or late September pattern. They just never could quite get into that, that season, um, that part of the, the middle part of the season. And we, we even had better luck down here than they did in the northern parts of the state. What's your outlook for the monsoon season after all that? <laughs> Let's do ours in a minute after, because I think that there's a few early forecasts that we could talk about. And then I think we should offer our reasoning for our version of the monsoon. It's a good question. I want to button up the the heat season and just mention a few other things in terms of some of the, the hazards that will, will play out. Obviously, this is the time of year where we experience, you know, heat waves and even like, you know, a singular day and in the high temperatures can be quite problematic for a lot, lot of people, particularly those that are working outside. The pandemic has caused a real issue with cooling centers and, and uh, homeless shelters. So it, it, you know, there's that even a normal climatological uh, heat season coming up is going to be really problematic. Well, that's some- actually a good, good point. And I think I just underplayed it a little bit. In fact, it's probably more, uh, more consequential. Stay-at-home orders in the summer are more consequential than if people could go outside because for those that don't have AC and that can't go to public spaces for cooling, it can yeah. be pretty, pretty harmful. So there are a lot of uh, concerns about for public health reasons. But anyway, I, I guess the broader point I wanted to make is, is heat is obviously the first thing that we think about. But then there's a couple of other ones that's worth mentioning. One, we're now in the uh, moving into the, the height of the wildfire season. Our peak wildfire activity is usually right before the monsoon begins. Uh, forecasts from the Southwest Co- uh, Coordination Center. Their outlook for uh, June and July has both above normal fire activity is, is forecasted. I kind of feel like this is, I mean, it is above normal, but that's kind of normal. <laughs> or am I wrong on that? <laughs> no. So I, I think in, I, I watched the, the NIFC, National Energy Fire Center briefing from just last week, yesterday, just to kind of catch up on what the outlook was. And it was, it was pretty consistent with what we talked about earlier and when they first issued the, the seasonal fire outlook. And they're seeing above average fine fuels in the low deserts. And so that, that has shifted the fire risk. So what, you know, we, we, we had the heat come in in the end of April and the beginning of May. This is also a transition month where we're getting this um, battle between low pressures to the north and the ridge to the south, which leads to the windy conditions. We also have the sun uh, angle increasing the sky. So we end up having the boundary layer deepens and we get that kind of diurnal windy mixing and the dust devils kind of coming through. So, so the atmosphere is really sort of agitated and it's got a lot of wind to play with and it's dried out. So the relative humidities. So we, all, we have all this low, low desert fuel. And so um, I sent you a link this morning for this brand new project from the Forest Service where they've got something where they're using uh, something called FuelCast and it's using remote sensing to track the f- like pounds per acre of fine fuels. And you can see all across the low deserts around Phoenix and Tucson and out to Yuma that it's, it's, a, it's either above normal or far above normal as far as that fuel loading. There was a 1,500 acre wildfire in low desert fuels in Cave Creek, just north of Phoenix, I think earlier this week. And it came really close to burning down a bunch of houses. So they, they came in and bombed it with some uh, heavy air tankers to get it under control. 
the the wildland fire outlook projects above normal across even the high country, although they do call out specifically that the finer fuels, uh, there's plentiful finer fuels, which would make sense from uh, a relatively productive or wet, wet winter and the rapid temperatures that we've, we, the rapid warming temperatures that we talked about before. Off the top of your head, do you recall uh, recently when there has not been above normal fire, fire potential? I mean, if, first of all, temperature is an important ingredient in, in, in fire. Wind is always present uh, at this time of year and, and, and temperature with warming trend, uh, we seem to be year in and year out, you know, pretty darn hot, relatively speaking. Uh, it's just, I, I can't re- recall a year when uh, it wasn't above normal. I suppose the only time that that could have been the case is like when we're following on a drought. Uh, and of course, that's a bad situation in and, in and of itself. Yeah, I, be- I bet it was last year. <laughs> I, I bet it was, uh, I, we could look it up. I don't have it at my fingertips, but I, I bet you the, the seasonal fire outlook last spring for Arizona and New Mexico was below average because of the, the precip was so consistent and the temps were so low, so late in the season that the outlook was probably below average. But then I think I hear what you're saying too, is that the upper elevation. So in, I think they, we think about fires here in the Southwest as low elevation, fine fuels and upper elevation, a mix of like heavier fuels and fine fuels. And they're operating on different timescales too. And so you can get years where the low desert productivity is really low during droughts. So that fire risk goes way down. And if the timing of the precip is off, you won't grow a lot of fine fuels, but you can then have that drought really impact the upper elevation, heavier fuels. And then you have that risk uphill. Uh, if you're hearing my little boy in the background, that's uh, a nice little addition. Put him on the mic. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Okay, so wait, let's do one other projection. We did this last year before we move on to the monsoon. What do you think June, how many days above 100 do you think June temperatures uh, will fall? Uh, what's average? Yeah. We always do this. I never yeah. have like the- No, I have those numbers. Okay, good. Average for June in Tucson. Well, what, let's see. What, what, what do you think they are? Just give me, give me your best guess here. Let's, let's how, test. How many days? Above 100. 100 or above in, in, in Tucson at the airport. 100 and above. I can hear you Google searching right now. Uh, I'm not doing anything, Zach. What are you talking about? <laughs> Half the month is on average above 100. So I see, I see from June 10th on for Tucson, the average high is above 100. You're pretty, that's pretty good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you, uh, you, were, you, you passed this test. Um, <laughs> I go on average, <laughs> on average it, it's 18. 18, okay. 18 days. The maximum number of days, 2013, uh, 30. And then the minimum, you have to go back to 1965, which was three. So somewhere between three and 30. So what's your guess? This year, I'd say we're going to get 25. Nice. I, I I was just coming under a little bit under, under that. I was thinking 22. I feel like we're going to get hot. I think that there's some phenomenon of a Father's Day heat wave in the Southwest. Yeah, there seems to always be one around that time. Yeah, I mean, the last couple, I think last year we didn't end up having it, but the previous couple of years. Yeah, oh, the man, previous couple brutal. of years, it was up to like 115 or 114. Right, yep, yep. And it's just, it's 
just as that monsoon ridge is coming right overhead, and then you know once it gets north of us, we cool off slightly, and then we're usually in the into the monsoon season by then. Oh, those are the dog days. Yeah, all that sunlight. It's just it's the combination of those two things too. It's like the day won't quite end. All right, monsoon. So we're close enough now that we can wish cast. Yeah, that's what this is going to be. <laughs> if I was thinking that this monsoon was going to be miserable, I would be miserable right now. Yeah, I know. So uh, we might as well uh, sugar, not sugarcoat it, but... Um, oh, I'm going to sugarcoat it, all right. <laughs> all right, so the official forecast, the, the Climate Prediction Center offers their uh, monsoon forecast. They offer their, their, their seasonal forecast every, every, every month. To no surprise... They give an equal chances forecast, which is basically saying that the indicators that they're looking out provides no meaningful hedge uh, one way or the other. So that is, we're pretty used to it. We're pretty used to an, an equal chances forecast from the CPC, in part because the monsoon is pretty darn hard to forecast, Mike. Um, but we've got a couple other forecasts out there as well that I thought I would um, just briefly mention. So one of them uses sort of an analog technique, which looks at um, predominantly the sea surface temperature conditions that are currently in place and finds best matches in the past and, and, and then uses those best matches to create uh, precipitation maps, more or less. And that's one way to provide insight. Of course, the assumption there is that conditions... Uh, the same conditions or very similar conditions in the sea surface temperature manifest as well in precipitation patterns. And that's a, a fairly, uh, not fairly, it's a significant oversimplification of the system. But that forecast, Mike, paint, paints a, a sort of a, 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 a dry monsoon season. So I'm not sure how much stock you, if you have anything that you want to say on, on, on that at the moment, but uh, by this technique, Maybe the monsoon is, is, is drier than average. Any, any thoughts there? The Climate Prediction Center issuing the official forecast doesn't use one single model output, but they use a suite of different tools and then have to kind of use an expert system where they have to blend and choose and, and make some. And so what I've heard them talk about with respect to uh, the constructed analog is that I think some of the, the that we're, we're transitioning away from some of the conditions that the analog is kind of latching onto and that that might actually shift things around as we get closer to the monsoon season. And they also have other tools that are suggesting a wet monsoon. Right. So I think the blend of the tools gives them a blend of outcomes and there, none of them give them confidence that one of, one of the outcomes is more likely than the other. Yeah, that's a really good point. So that first forecast that I went over is an integration of a whole bunch of different tools. And what I was just talking about was a drill down into one of those tools. Yeah, yep. And yep. so, you know, the CPC's official forecast, when you have a number of their tools pointing in the same direction, you usually get a signal there. That's right. Uh, and when you have their tools pointing in opposite directions, which we'll talk about in a minute, there's equal chances, let's say there's not a particular strong signal one, one way or the other. So their constructed analog technique is pointing toward um, drier than average conditions. But what you said, Mike, I think is really important, which is it's, it's based on that, that forecast is based on, well, what are the current conditions right now? It doesn't, 
it doesn't have any insight into how they will unfold in the next month, month and a half. And that's particularly uh, important as we'll talk about in a minute because we do seem to be on a rather uh, steep probably isn't the right word, but we are, we are descending into cooler sea surface temperatures in the tropical Pacific that would be more La Nina-like uh, than they currently are. And that could have substantial uh, effect. So the dry signal is just based on now and looking, looking at, 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 at the past and, and really doesn't incorporate any, any changes that might happen from now until the monsoon starts or even during the monsoon. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure that the analogs, if they're even, if they're forward looking at all, I think that they, if you, if you carried forward the current sea surface temperature pattern in imprint or overlaid that on the monsoon season, that would give you one particular outcome. But if it's on the move, like you said, then that tool becomes, a, I think, a little less useful. If, if we're thinking of it the right way, yeah. You mentioned a minute ago that there is some indication that um, the opposite signal may, may, may play out. What's, what's driving that? And by opposite signal, I mean wetter, maybe a slightly wetter start and, and um, overall monsoon in the Southwest. I, I think it comes down to this transition from kind of warmish neutral to coolish neutral or even cool which would be more, more La Nina-like conditions, which some of the guidance tools that they use suggest that that sets up a different wave pattern that favors the enhancement of the subtropical ridge across the Western US. And so I kind of take that to be a plus or a positive. I don't know how contingent it is on the strength of that cool anomaly emerging and how much of that reorganization of the sea surface temperature patterns and the resulting convection in the Pacific are required to get that kind of response. But my, my, I, I, would get, I would guess that you would need, you know, to see the atmosphere really respond to those cool anomalies. And that's, that's kind of a big ask for the atmosphere to do that really quickly as we move into the monsoon season. So, um, and I think CPC has talked about, Climate Prediction Center has talked about that there are, you know, the other, factors at play will be Madden-Julian oscillation, which is weak um, in the Northern Hemisphere, but still can impact the mid-latitude weather patterns. And um, we'll have to keep an eye on the East Pacific uh, hurricane season as well. And so the NOAA outlook for the East Pacific hurricane season came out today. It is suggesting a, an average to below average uh, season for the East Pacific, which it's completely consistent with everything else we've been talking about, which is this sort of slide towards cooler than average conditions in the East Pacific and then maybe La Nina conditions, which will presumably enhance the Atlantic hurricane season, which, you know, it's not unheard of to have Atlantic storms that are landfalling in the Gulf of Mexico in Texas or Mexico to actually interact with the monsoon season later. But it, that's, that's a big, long trip for those um, storm systems. But they can turn into easterly waves that interact with our monsoon season. Right, because those easterly waves are important because they can uh, generate uh, surges, moisture surges up the Gulf. Yeah, um, and they, they can be organizing elements um, for widespread convection and so a lot of stuff. So I guess that, I, was that a long way of me warming up to what my outlook is? My outlook is for average to above average precipitation for this monsoon season. I, and you see, I held on to average 
which is <laughs> I did, and I I think we should tell the listeners like I stipulated uh, before going on uh, on air that Mike couldn't uh, say uh, climatology. That was uh, that was not uh, it was not a it was not 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 allowed, and yet you still did kind of. But uh, I'll, I'll I'll give that to you. I'll give it yeah. to you. Yeah, but it's also uh, you know <laughs> it's a hopeful it's a hopeful look. I you know it seems to be that there's enough upside here in the stuff we've been talking about to suggest it won't be a total crash out, <laughs> crash out and burn. Um, but again, I I mean I think we're going to have to get to June fifteenth and start to look at the the longer range weather models to see. I think it's going to be that kind of monsoon. It's going to be, I mean, as, as most of them are anyways, um, week to week. And this East Pacific hurricane season, if it is quieter than normal, that's, that has been a significant amount of precip for us in the fall for some right. of these monsoon seasons. I mean, we, not to prelude a conversation that we will inevitably oh, I have your in, I pushed your button in October um, <laughs> or even in September as uh, uh, a recurving tropical storm comes in and we're like well it's not really monsoon and you're like ah, it's so funny you're so irritated I can see it on the zoom call it's so well, good <laughs> no but I, I, I want to I want to ask about um, any signals that you know of between these easterly wave the frequency of easterly waves and um, sort of La Nina conditions. Are there, um, do you know of any uh, relationship there? I, I, it's been done. I, I don't know about it off the top of my head. We should kind of do our lit review yeah. for, for next. I mean, there, there's been, um, there's the North Atlantic subtropical high, which is related to decadal variability in the Atlantic sector, which you and I had talked about that. We pulled off that, that there, there's some variability there on, on decades that can relate to those, um, can relate to the monsoon, I think, through that mechanism. And then there have been plenty of studies on inverted troughs and easterly waves. I, and I'm sure some climatology is on that too. So yeah, we can look that up. Okay, so you're, you're leaning toward a, a, a above average monsoon. And I, I, I said average to above average. <laughs> so that's the full middle tercile and uh, upper tercile. I'm, I'm shifting my weight towards those two away from the bottom tercile. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. Something to hang our hats on. Um, <laughs> I was, I was thinking about that this morning and, and, and sort of what my outlook was and trying to come up with some plausible explanation for it. So let me just throw out to you one idea and I would love you to pick it apart. So I was thinking that, it would also be an above average season. And I was thinking more that it was going to be an early start. And, and consequently, because of an early start, usually an earlier start uh, correlates with an above average monsoon, just because you have more days available to, to generate um, precipitation. And the reason I was thinking about the early onset was, and you already sort of debunked this, but one, I was thinking that the, the, that the temperatures would, would sort of persist uh, and that we would have an earlier building of the ridge. We've already sort of talked through that. And, and that maybe is not so much of a forcing mechanism by itself. If there's no feedback there, it's, it'll be more influenced by the synoptic scale pattern. So let's put that aside. The other one is the Gulf of California, the temperatures in the Gulf of California. There's a paper that came out not too long ago that talked about just the relationship between temperatures in the Gulf and monsoon rain in, in, in the Southwest. And when temperatures 
sort of crest, average temperature is sort of crest above 26 degrees uh, C, um, that's when the monsoon sort of gets going. Or in other words, it, the monsoon hasn't started prior to the average temperatures in the Gulf getting to uh, around 26 C. And we could talk a little bit about the, why that would be the case. And then most of the monsoon precipitation happens while those Gulf of California temperatures are around 29 or, or, or C or, or, or greater, so really warm conditions. So with that, uh, I just pulled out some data on what the current sea surface temperatures look like in the Gulf of California. And they're much above average at the moment, somewhere between two and three degrees uh, C, two and two and four. And the current temperatures at the at, at, at the base, at the, the southern ex- extension of the of the Gulf, they're sort of around 25, 26, so pretty warm, uh, whereas the nor- northern, condi- northern temperatures are, are a few degrees cooler. So they're, they're warmer than average right now. If that continues on a trajectory, and I guess the question is, is why would those temperatures continue to I- increase or would there be anything to sort of change those, that pattern in, in a way? So based on that pattern now and just sort of eyeball projecting forward, uh, I was thinking of an early monsoon. What do you think of that rationale? Are you, are you going to de- debunk it, please? <laughs> that is just a beautiful, beautiful case of wish casting. They're just all the magic. The magic comes together. I mean, <laughs> the magic comes alive. Comes what about, what about, hold on, before you, before you uh, really lay into me, what about forecasting based on one variable for the monsoon? Oh, I like doing that. Okay. That's good. <laughs> Maybe we should do that. What's your favorite variable? You're, oh, it's Gulf. It's Gulf. Gulf of California right now because it's. it's yeah. yeah. No, if I, I could pick one. It would be the position of the high. Obviously, I I, I think I would too. Actually, um, I, that's the one I usually latch onto as being the most important. So I I think that the Gulf of California sea surface temperatures are absolutely important, and we've talked about a couple of papers that have identified. Um, including this one by Mitchell that we're talking about, which has some critical thresholds that they've identified statistically with precip across Arizona, New Mexico. Um, I think one being, what is, did you say it already? 26 degrees Celsius? Yeah. Or kind of, you've got to get to that point by the, at the Northern Gulf. And then really to get into the soup of it is going to be 29 degrees Celsius. So that's quite warm. My understanding of the dynamics of the sea surface temps in the Gulf is not particularly good, but the stuff I've seen in papers is that the Gulf tends to heat up when it's under really stagnant weather pattern. And so it's basically that subtropical ridge building across the whole Southwest, including Mexico. And you, you stop getting the cold front events that blow down the Gulf of California. So if, if, that, if, that, if you get the down, the down uh, Gulf wind events, it's going to cause um, overturning and it's going to slow down that warming. And then vice versa is if we, can, if we can get it to build in and bake under the sun and get that warmth, that that's going to help reduce the inversion that sets up over the Gulf of California that traps in a lot of that uh, moisture. And then once it gets hot enough, it's actually much more available as far as Gulf surge moisture that will move up into Arizona. So the mechanism then is it's just increased ev- evaporation that adds a, a, a pretty critical moisture source that uh, if you have these like passing easterly waves, it just drives more moisture into the region. 
there's a paper that looked at the sea surface temperatures and how if they're too low, you end up having a maritime inversion, temperature inversion, which basically traps that uh, moisture in. And as it gets warm enough, that inversion weakens and then basically liberates that uh, moisture. I, I, I really hope I'm no, remembering that, that correctly. I'm, I'm remembering that, that conversation and that I, I think you're right on that. Yeah, it was a really cool paper and it, it, it made sense because it was, it was, you know, it was looking at the, the either modeled radiosons or measured radiosons within, in the Gulf of California. There's a critical temperature point where you could, you could interact with that moisture and, and below that you really couldn't. I expect that that sea surface temp will be a bit flaky until we get into that more, that um, persistent ridging pattern as all that mid-latitude weather retreats to the north. These conditions are all seemingly correlated with the same thing, right? Like it's not the driver. It's not to say that we should be looking at um, what the temperatures are in the Gulf of California, but it's it, it, it's really those temperatures are are also responding to uh, sort of the position of that ridge. It's again like we can monitor all of these things, and there may be there may be years where something else is going on that the position of the ridge may be in a particular favorable place, but for some other reason, which I can't, you know, come up with at the moment, but the sea surface temperatures in the, the Gulf of California aren't like responding in that same way. There could be those situations. And so it is worth monitoring all of these other signs to make sure they're all pointing in the same, same direction. But we, we do need to keep our eye on the ball here with what's the, the mechanism that is of, of critical importance. And it does seem to be, the sort of synoptic pattern of where, where that ridge position is. Yeah, that's, that's basically what I, and again, it's, it's simple shorthand for a whole lot of moving parts and pieces. And so I think it by itself is a really, it's a good, it's good shorthand, but it's not complete. I think it's, right. you know, it's kind of what you're saying too. And I, you know, I'm just, just pulled up the uh, global ensemble forecasting system, um, the 500 millibar plot. So it's, I mean, these things will forecast out to 384 and it's, I'm looking at the spaghetti plot right now and it literally is crazy spaghetti. So this would be at hour 384, which is June 6th. There's no real good discernible pattern here. And so I think as we get into June and we start to look in that two week window going forward, I, you know, as we talk about the next podcast, looking to see where that ridge pattern sets up is going to be really important early on. And it, it could give us some indication early on if we're headed for trouble or, or not. I want to move on just because I'm looking at the time. I can maybe ask a provocative question. And I was, I'm sort of now looking at the North American multi-model ensemble, uh, which is a set of models. Uh, and I'm looking at it for the, the monsoon season. And this, this, this is one of those tools, or, or it's a number of the tools that go into the CPC's forecast, uh, but they're dynamical models. And uh, they all say slightly different things. But, but when you look at their skill, and that this is a measure of their, how accurate their forecasts are in comparison to what actually happened, there's no skill at this time for the monsoon season for these models, uh, for the ensemble, zero. We kind of expect that because we've talked about this on this pod every single year, just how complicated the monsoon is. Uh, and I mean, that's one of the things that uh, I think bring people into this conversation. It's, it's that there's not only 
awesome dramatic weather, but scientifically there's just a, a ton of parts to this, to this, you know, engine, so to speak. But the question, the provocative question I want to ask you, Mike, is, and I know you're not a forecaster, but you do think a lot about the monsoon, but what do you think we'll get to a time when let's say we can make in this month in May projections of the monsoon season, which has with as much skill as we can and so forecast, for example, in the winter? Or are we doomed to just make some really important scientific discoveries that uh, show just how complex it is, but really we're unable to, I mean, really that the, the monsoon is just a stochastic system. I think this fits into the whole discussion in literature around weather prediction in general, because this is really weather prediction rather than something that's a slowly evolving phenomenon like ENSO, right? So I think it's, I think it's hard to compare them because ENSO is sea surface temperature patterns in oceanography and oceanographic and slowly evolving and has some dynamics that allow us to leverage that slowly evolving part of it. Whereas, yeah, I, I'm trying to like use the, is the, is the monsoon a comparable analog? Well, let me, because of its large scale, because of its seasonality. Well, no, I, I brought up Enso not, not to compare phenomenon, but, but just to say, think about like, something with some skill, but, you know, not, not perfect skill, uh, but something with, with some skill. And, 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 and also, yeah, it is weather and we can, but we're, but I'm, what I'm talking about for the monsoon project projections or predictions is at a little bit of a seasonal time, time scale, uh, if you will, like out uh, a month in advance, let's say, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not putting you on the spot here. I just curious if you had a take on, whether or not you thought we would get a handle on on this sort of predictability in a, in a way that we could have confidence in, or 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 that the the North American multi-model ensemble would show some skill in their dynamical models, or are we just, you know, it's just a really hard problem. Um, I you know I I think that we will inch the ball forward with like the NMME. We might get closer to doing things like broad scale seasonal total precipitation under certain conditions like El Nino and La Nina. I think we're kind of already, you know, hinting at that. I think this middle ground, like we're in right now, which is a transition, the vagaries of weather and some of those really weak forcings like easterly waves, inverted troughs, and then the interaction with things like tropical storms makes it, you know, weather's timescale mm -hmm. phenomenon that I think are going to be really, really challenging for the foreseeable future. I'm not even sure if throwing more modeling at it will. And again, there's, there's really cool papers on like limits of predictability in weather and, and where we think we'll make those advancements. Right. Okay. Let's uh, maybe wrap this up. We've kind of talked about the tropical Pacific Ocean quite a bit and the descent into uh, a potential La Nina this winter, but it's got an interesting forecast. Current thinking Mike, is that sea surface temperatures have been cooling and uh, that trend is, is going to continue uh, for, a few, for a few months. And then interestingly, it becomes less certain what's going to happen during 
what we would normally consider as sort of the, the heart of the El Nino or La Nina predictability season in, in, in the winter. And, it, and that the, the trend toward a La Nina condition sort of reverses and goes, goes back toward uh, neutral. Any thoughts on that, Mike? It's kind of an interesting pattern, right? Like it's, it's, it's trending toward the models are, are, are suggesting a La Nina will emerge. And then uh, late in the fall, it sort of does an, an, an abrupt uh, transition back to sort of neutral conditions. I think we've seen this before. I think trying to do the ENSO forecasting in like April and May is pretty dicey. And I think the models really, really struggle. I mean, we're in that predictability, predictability barrier and um, just, you know, reading some of the uh, climate.gov, the recent Ensel blog, really noting that we'll feel like we have a, a little better sense of where things are really going in the next couple of months is kind of where I sit on this whole thing. The indications across the Pacific is that there is cold water below the surface moving uh, eastward in the Pacific. The easterlies have enhanced a little bit more recently. But the, the models themselves have not latched onto that that's like a done deal as far as moving into um, La Nina. Well, it's just interesting. If you look at the CPC and IRI's probabilistic forecasts, they release two of them, one in the beginning of the month and one of them in the, in the mid-month. And the mid-month is basically just the objective results from uh, all of the different models. And then the ones in the early parts of the month uh, include those, but actually you have the, the expert judgment that's, that's tweaking the results. So the early month has been continually uh, progressing toward a La Nina for the, for the winter. I mean, each month it's, it's sort of increased in, in probability. And interestingly, the objective is sort of not nearly as bullish. Um, right, right. And, and the most recent objective, mid-May, really calls for greater chances of neutral conditions, whereas the expert uh, um, version of it called for slightly greater chances of, um, of La Nina. Um, and even like the objective ones are, are calling for a, a greater chance of an El Nino than a La Nina. So I think maybe your point is a good one, which is at, at this stage, it's like, uh, and th there aren't really strong signals uh, you know, we're not heading toward a super El Nino or a super La Nina. And it's just like, it's, it's pretty noisy. And so maybe we ought to hold, hold off. That being said, you know, a lot of the other things that we've talked about are still picking up on what the tropical Pacific ocean is going to do. So they're in part based on this. Yeah, I know. And that's, that's why I feel like we're at this, we're in a really big, you know, kind of shrug your shoulders moment because a lot of our guidance for the seasonal outlooks, even for the summer are based on El Nino, La Nina, even if it's really weak, we really don't have a lot to hang our hand on because none of, none of these tools are really converging consistently in any direction. And so, yeah, like to your point, the, the early May ENSO outlook that you were just talking about, that's the one where the forecasters are t tweaking it, right? And then the mid-month one is purely model. So you, you actually don't know if they're if they're wrestling with, like, if they have some idea that it's more La Nina because they, you know, they feel like they know better than the models or have some additional information, or if conditions have actually changed from early in the month to mid-month and that. So it really, we'll have to see what the next, the early June forecaster-based 
probabilities look like if they continue, if they look more like the mid month, then things have changed. Just looking at the, the, the model spread, the statistical average of the ENSO models is neutral, slightly warm, and the dynamical is neutral, slightly cold, right? And so it's only the CPC consolidation model that is really pretty heavy handed in its La Nina. That's a good observation. Okay, so 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 point here is that things should uh, both the monsoon and this these inso forecasts with another month will be in a little bit of a better. We'll be a month closer to the monsoon, so we'll have a little bit uh, less lead time there. And uh, it's easier to forecast it when it's occurring. Yeah, one day is easier than a week out, right? That's right. Well, that was fun, Mike. Yeah, uh, great any, discussion any other, today, Zach. Any other parting shots? No, just check back on my beard in about a month. <laughs> yeah, be careful with that. I, it looks like you've got crumbs in there. I do. I actually do. Yeah, I'm not even <laughs> sure what day they're from. All right. Well, as always, we really appreciate everybody from um, for taking time and, and, and listening to us. And if you, you get a chance to give us a thumbs up or whatever it is on uh, wherever you get your your podcast subscription from, that, that'd, be, that'd be great. We're trying to do a little bit more advertising And, you know, our claim to fame here is that we're the longest running podcast on climate in the, in the Southwest. So, uh, you know, I I think we've got to, we've, we've buttoned down this niche. All right. Take care, Mike. All right. Thanks, Ben. Thanks everybody. All right. Bye-bye.